please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. This will be the last time you turn with me to Romans chapter 7 as we will conclude this chapter today. I'm excited about what we're going to be talking about this morning, but as we come into next week, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, which begins, There is therefore now no condemnation. I'm ready to talk about the fact that there is no condemnation. Romans 6 and Romans 7 are some of the hardest chapters in the Bible to understand. And, but they're, they're, they're very rich in their meaning. And here at Aloma Church, we, we don't pull punches. We, we, we go where the Spirit leads. And as we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Romans, we cannot skip the hard parts of the Bible. And so my goal in Romans 6 and Romans 7 over the past several weeks was to break it down as in the most simplest terms that we possibly can to understand what it is that Paul is telling us in these two chapters. Though difficult to understand, they are vital for the believer to have the knowledge because what Paul says in Romans 6 and Romans 7 is so important for how we are overcomers, how you and I can overcome and beat and defeat sin in our life. So to understand these two chapters is of the utmost importance. And so we turn to Romans chapter 7. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse number 13. Did that which is good bring death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might be become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I, I do not want is, is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in my spirit. But I see in my members, in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members or my flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Father, we thank you for this truth. Now, Lord, may we open our minds, may we pause for just a few moments and not focus on anything else, but Lord, help us to understand the deep truth that, that, that you're speaking to us, because Father, within it, within these words lies the power to overcome temptation in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name, and all of God's people said, please be seated. Romans chapter 7 is obviously all about the law. When you read Romans chapter 7, you'll see over 20 times Paul mentions the law. Now, when he uses the word law, he's not referring always 
to the law of Moses. He talks about the law of our members or the law of flesh. He, he talks about the law of the spirit. He, he uses this word a law a lot, but there's no question Romans 6 and Romans 7 are all about law. He tells us that the law is good, that the law is valid. While the law is not the Christian's master, it is still the standard by which God uh, judges everything. So people believe the law is bad. Some people do. Have you ever heard the statement, don't shoot the messenger? Well, well this is exactly what, what, what we're seeing. It's a very simplistic way to understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 concerning the law. He's saying, don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the law. It's not the law's fault that it tells you that it's bad. You may not like what it says, but it's right. When a doctor gives you a diagnosis that you don't want to hear, is it the doctor's fault for giving you that message? You don't shoot the messenger. It's not the doctor's fault. Just like when it comes to the law, you may not like what the law says. You may not like being told that you're sinful, but don't shoot the messenger. In the same way, the law of God tells us that we have sinned. You may not like it. We even live in a world today that doesn't want to be told that they're wrong. The world doesn't want to be told that alternative lifestyles apart from what God has deemed appropriate or sinful. But the message we proclaim is right, whether it's cultural or not, whether it's accepted by the culture or not, the message must remain the same. The law does not change. The message is right. So in these verses, we find Paul a believer, a follower of Jesus who, who is struggling He's, he's struggling internally between what is doing what is right and doing what is wrong. It kind of feels good, doesn't it, to see that somebody else is struggling with the same things we struggle with? I mean, we don't wish ill will on anyone, but it does bring some comfort to know that we're not the only ones trying to figure this thing out. That even the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian, uh, some may argue, who has ever lived, struggled with these things not one of us is perfect not one of us has all the answers and as we said if there was a christian that we could point to and say here's a guy that has it all figured out it would be the apostle paul but he says i am no good in essence he says the things i should be doing i'm not doing and the things i shouldn't be doing is what i am actually doing you say wow paul that's a very negative view of life it's not negative at all. It's very accurate and realistic. I mean, don't get Paul wrong here. He did some pretty remarkable things in his life. He started many churches. Thousands, tens of thousands of people were saved through the ministry of Paul as he journeyed around uh, the known world at that time with Silas. Thousands of people saved. Churches started. Christianity spread because of this man. But here is this man. Who did all the good that he did in life, he still says, I am struggling with sin in my life. He struggled just like you and I. So these verses that, that, that we're talking about today, they describe the struggle that, that Christian, you and I have in our daily walk. How do we put those things behind us that need to be behind us? How do we put those things in front of us that need to be in front of us in our daily walk? How do we reject the bad? How do we embrace the good? These are things that Paul is dealing with in these verses. That, that when we look at life, 
We, we, we find, though, that, that as Paul said, I know what is right. Christians, we, we, we know what we should be doing, right? We know the appropriate choice. We know. We know. We, we know it's, it's wrong to gossip. We know it, it, it's, it's wrong to hate. We know it's wrong to do these things, but yet we choose to do it. But in our mind, there's this struggle, right? Am I the only one that experiences the struggle between good and bad? Or do you experience that as well? We, we all experience it. It's human nature. As, as Christians, we experience this, this pull and this tug, this tug of war within the soul, within the mind, within the emotions, within the will about doing what is good and what is right versus doing what is evil and what is bad. So how do we realize our victory? The way we realize our victory is that we must look at our point of defeat. In order to understand how to win, you must look at your weakest member. Think about this in, in, in any sports. Any, any sport team that goes out on the field, every team has a weak link. There's no such thing as a perfect team. Whether that be baseball or soccer or football or, or band, no, no matter what team that you form, there's the weakest link. And the coach, the best coaches in the world know who their weakest person is. And where does he spend most of his focus and his time? Focusing on the weakest member. I've learned this in life. The most effective leaders and people who win are often individuals who know their limitations and weaknesses. They know how far they can go, and they know what they can't do. They admit their faults. They, they, they admit what they are not able to do. You see, we can't do everything. I believe what Paul is doing here in these verses is self-examination and, and showing all of us, showing humanity what our weak point is. That if we can identify our weak point, then we can build around it. We can guard around it. We can build it up so it doesn't become a weak, as weak of a point for us. So where is the struggle? Well, he first of all tells us the reality of our sin. Verses 13 through 15, he talks about the reality of our sin. Let's look at verse 15 together. We already read it, but let's read it again. Verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not, for I do, not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Can you see the struggle that Paul is dealing with here? Paul is saved. But then he says he's of the flesh. He says that he's sold under sin. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. In your Bibles, underline that word, those, that phrase in verse 14, sold under sin. That's a very interesting concept, especially for a Christian to say, especially for Paul to say. Because over in Romans chapter 6, this is the enigma. This is the, 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 the issue within the text that people struggle with. Because over in Romans chapter 6 and over in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that we are free from sin. And freedom from sin means that we have freedom and victory in God. But now he comes in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, and he tells us that he is sold under sin. Well, which one is it, Paul? 
are, are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to God? Notice what he says. He doesn't say I'm a slave to sin. He said I'm sold under sin. Romans 6 and Romans 7 are chapters that help us. They help the Christian to understand the struggle within us. As believers, we know right from wrong. But when tempted, we succumb. We often succumb to that temptation. We fall into sin. Paul says, I am, verse 14, I am sold under sin. You see that in your Bible. That verb sold in, in the Greek, it's in the present passive tense. That doesn't mean anything to us unless you know Greek. The, when, when a verb is in the, the, uh, the perfect tense, not present tense, but it's in the perfect tense. When a, a verb is in the perfect tense, it, it literally means a completed action. It's a done deal. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, yes, I am a slave to God, but the sin is a reality in my life. I am sold unto sin. It is a reality that I am going to mess up. As a believer in Jesus, yes, I am a slave to God, but I also, a slave to God means freedom to choose. And I know me, and I know that if I'm given the option enough times, at some point, I will choose sin because I'm sold. Perfect tense. It, it, it's a repeated, it has a beginning point, and it's repeated from that point on. I am sold under sin. A few weeks ago, we drew on this, this TV, and I, I showed you how the flesh still influences us. Remember how the dead man still influences us? This, again, is what Paul is saying. How even though our flesh is dead, we are a slave to God, we can still be influenced by that old flesh. It's reality. Now, I preface all of this because Paul prefaces this. Because some are going to say, and some do say, some Christians even today say, well, if, if sin, if I'm sold under sin and sin is reality in my life, then that means when I'm faced with sin and I really want to commit this sin because it's really going to be good for me, then I can go ahead and do it because I'm already forgiven. Paul says, absolutely not. He said, that's not the appropriate way for Christians to think. That's wrong thinking because sin is a huge deal. Yes, you are forgiven of that sin, but just because you, are, you know you're going to succumb to sin in your life doesn't mean that you should do it. Just because you will sin and it's a reality in your life, it doesn't give you the license to go and live your life however you want to. Sin is a huge deal. Then Paul gives us the reason we sin. Verses 16 through 24. We've already read it. The reason I sin. Paul is, is, is given a very clear picture as to why we sin. Again, these verses confuse some people, but it seems pretty straightforward. What Paul is doing here is he's giving us one side of a two-sided coin. Every coin has a head side and a tail side. It's got a front side and a back side. So what Paul is doing here in these verses 16 through 24 is the side of the coin he's talking about, he's only talking about the head side. He's only talking about one side. He's not giving us the other side at this point. He will in Romans chapter 8, but he, he, in order to describe the coin, he's got to deal with one side first. And so don't get confused. Does that make sense? He, he's dealing, what he's dealing with here is 
is living our life by the law of the flesh. Living in the flesh instead of living in the spirit. If our coin that Paul was dealing with in Romans 7, Romans 8, is life, one side life in the flesh, the other side is life in the spirit, Romans 7, all he's talking about is this one side of the coin, life in the flesh. This is important to understand for the remainder of this message. You have got to get this. What Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 is he's dealing with one side of the equation. There's two sides of this story. There's two sides of the equation. He'll get to the other side in Romans chapter 8, the law of the life, the law of the spirit. But right now, he's dealing with the law of the flesh. He's talking only about one side of the coin. Everybody following me? Do this if you're following me. Okay, I'm seeing more of this than this. So, so Paul is dealing with the law of the flesh. This is important. He's depicting the struggle of us choosing the flesh over the spirit. When, when, we, when we sin, what happens when we sin? When we sin, we go outside of God's will. Sin at its core, Christian, sin at its core is when you step outside of God's will, when you choose your will over God's will. That's a very basic definition of sin, but it's a good one. Sin is when I choose my will, or in our example of the coin, when I choose my flesh over the, 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 the choice of the Spirit. So when I sin is when I choose what I want to do, not what God wants me to do. I'm choosing the head side of the coin, the law of the flesh, versus the tail side of the coin, the law of the spirit. Following me now. Everybody's still following me. You're tracking with me. Good. So what Paul is saying is, is we often choose. When we sin, we always choose my will over God's will. And Christian, when you choose your will over God's will, you step outside of God's blessings for your life. Are you forgiven? Well, yes, of course you're forgiven. God hates sin. Remember Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. Before we were saved, our sin is met with the wrath of God. But when we sin, several things happen. Yes, again, we're forgiven. That sin is met immediately with the grace and the mercy of God. If you're a believer and you sin, your sin is met immediately with the grace and the mercy of God. It's covered over the blood of Jesus. However, while your sin is covered... With the blood of Jesus, what is happening in our heart is we are choosing my will over his will. We are choosing the flesh over the spirit. Again, this is the basic definition of sin. Choosing my way over God's way. And when I choose my way, I enter into my will. And when I enter into my will, I can no longer be in his will. Does that make sense? I can't serve two masters. I will love the one and I will reject the other. You, you, you can't straddle the fence as a Christian. When you are sinning, you have exited his will for your life and you have entered into your will for your life. That's sin. You are being tempted and you pull out and you fulfill the lust of the flesh. Some churches are on this kick now that, that, that what we do, it doesn't matter. What Christians do, where they go, uh, how they live. As long as they come to church on Sunday, as long as they turn around in three circles and holler Jesus, everything's okay. That's wrong. 
That's, that's the wrong way to think. How you live your life does matter. What you do does matter. I know it's countercultural. I, I, I know it's it, to, to, to say otherwise, but are we here to please God or are we here to please culture? So when we sin, and we're all guilty of it, we all do it. The reason I sin is because I choose my will over God's will. I choose my flesh, the head side of the coin, over the spirit, the tail side of the coin. Let, let me give you, I'm going to draw on the board in just a moment, but before I go there, to give a basic, try to, to outline what it is that we're talking about and what Paul is talking about in simple terms. Let, let me give you a biblical illustration. A, a, verse 24 is a good summary. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 24. This is a great summary for verses 16 through 23. This is the thesis. Paul ends when he's saying, the things I should do, I don't. The things I don't, I should. The reason why I sin, he comes to verse 24. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The picture is that Paul, a Christian, a man who is alive, is carrying around this old dead carcass, his flesh, this stinking, dead, rotting carcass on his back. And, and he's lugging this thing around saying, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Jesus entered into the city of Bethany. It seemed to be he came a few days late. At least Mary and Martha thought he came late, right? They came running to Jesus and they fell at his feet and they said, Master, if you would have been here just a few days ago, you, you, you could have healed our, our brother Lazarus, but now he's dead. His friend Lazarus had died. Mary and Martha are heartbroken. You see, if Jesus would have only come a few days earlier, he could have brought healing. But let me ask this question. Was Jesus late? Jesus is never late. Jesus was right on time. I would actually argue that Jesus was not coming to perform a, a miracle of healing. He had done that before. Oh, you... You, you, you've got the sniffles or you've got the cold or you've got uh, some other disease. Jesus healed the diseases. He's done that before. Jesus' point in coming late was to show that he was coming right on time because he wasn't coming just to perform a miracle of healing. He was coming to perform the miracle of resurrection. He was coming to show that not only does he control uh, the, 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 the sickness of people, but he controls life and death itself. So Jesus comes and he stands in front of the tomb. And he says some very peculiar things. Very interesting. He said, roll the stone away. And all the people said, no, don't do that. For, in the King James, he stinketh. Let me translate that. He stinks. He's been dead in this, this is Israel heat for days. And Jesus, if we remove that stone, you are going to get the full brunt of the stinketh that's going to come from that tomb. Jesus said, remove the stone. 
And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus obeyed. Lazarus was dead, and he obeyed. He walked out. And when he walked out, he was wrapped in his grave clothes. He, he was wrapped like a mummy. And Jesus then said, loose him of those grave clothes. Why? When Lazarus came out, I wasn't there. You probably weren't there. I doubt you were there. That was 2,000 years ago. But if we were there and that tomb opened up, I guarantee you, have you ever smelled death before? Once you smell death, you can't get that smell out of your mind. It's the most putrid smell that your nostrils will ever smell. So when that grave was open, you would have smelt that smell. And Lazarus would have come out and he would have been alive, but those grave clothes... Those grave clothes would still stink. So Jesus said, remove that off of him, that which is still dead. Take off of him that which is still a reminder of death. As long as Lazarus wore those clothes, he would be carrying around death, the, the, the odor, the, the stigma of death. But how foolish and how sickening. Why would a person who's alive want to smell and look like a person who is dead? Bingo. Bingo. If we begin to ask that question, we are asking the appropriate question. If we begin to think this way, we are thinking the right way. How foolish it is that a person who is alive, a person who has been saved, a person who is a Christian, how foolish it is that we walk around lugging around this rotten flesh and we do that every time we sin. Paul said, who will deliver me though? I am a wretched, I am a crooked, I am an evil man. Who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul asked. How do we find deliverance? How do we find victory? The, the reality of sin, the reason I sin? Then he tells us the redeemer of our sin, verse 25. He, he gives us the answer. He, he tells us the answer, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our victory is in Jesus. Pastor, that sounds like a Sunday school answer. You know what a Sunday school answer is? In children's ministry, whenever a teacher asks a question, all the students, all the kids will in unison answer, Jesus, Bible, or God, and they will probably get that question right. It's a Sunday school answer. Pastor, you're telling me I am struggling with addiction. I am struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with this sin. And you're telling me a Sunday school answer is the answer? We may call it a Sunday school answer, but Jesus is the answer. Paul believed it. Paul said, oh, wretched man, I am. However, praise be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory. Jesus is the answer. I want to illustrate this for you on the screen. So as we think about who we are 
And what I'm about to put on the screen, it's a very simplistic, please, please forgive me for being very, very simple in the drawings. I, I'm not being technical at all, uh, but through the simplest of means, I think it gives us an idea as to what Paul is saying. So for us to understand this, we must understand who we are. We as human beings are made up of three parts. Now, don't get confused. We are not Trinity the way God is Trinity. God, God is uniquely Trinity. We are not God and we cannot become God. However, he did create us in his image. He created us with three parts. We are made up of three parts. And, and uh, the Bible calls these three parts, number one, the body. Number two, the soul. Number three, the spirit. Everybody following me. So if, if we could, we're, we're digging deep, 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 deep. And again, you can see how simple we're making things here. But this is important. The body in uh, the Greek, I know we have some people who like to look at Greek, and so I'll give it to you in Greek here. Uh, it, it's the word sarx. In English, it's S-A-R-X. It means flesh. The sarx, the body, the flesh, the, the old man. Uh, Paul used it in Romans chapter 7. He said the word members. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. You think you're going to remember this, but you probably won't. I encourage you to write these things down because it's going to help you. So you don't have to worry about the Greek. The, the idea, though, is the body is the old man. It's the flesh. It's our members. The soul. The, the, the word soul in Greek, it's uh, the word suke, where we get our word psychology from, the psyche. Uh, the study of the mind, right? Psychology, the study of the mind, suke. Uh, we use, it's translated mind in the Bible. It's translated soul. It's translated life, uh, emotions, will. All of these are the soul. So we have the body. The sarks, the flesh, we have the soul, the, the suke, the psyche, the mind, the life, the will, the emotions. And then we have the spirit. This is uh, the pneuma. Uh, the pneuma. That literally means breath. Life. Everybody following me so far? Which one? Everybody following me? Good, because this is simple here. We're, we're, we're going to dig a little bit deeper now. Okay, you've heard me teach on this before. You've heard me teach that salvation is made up of three parts. Past, present, and future. Have you heard this before? I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. So I was saved, right? That's, that's past tense. I was saved. Uh, present tense, I am being saved. Future tense, I will be saved. So past tense, my personal testimony. I was saved, past tense, when I was 17 years old. I was in a little small church. Where it was hot like this every single Sunday because they couldn't afford air conditioning. And so we sweated every Sunday. 
But I was saved in that little old Pentecostal church in Maryville, Tennessee. That's where I was saved. When I repented of my sins, I invited Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of my life. I was saved at that moment. The big word is the word justification. Uh, justification. Uh, that, that literally means um, God declares a sinner righteous. So when I repented of my sins, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. My relationship with God began at that point. That's where every relationship, if you're saved, you've had that experience. And again, this is very simple. This is very, very simple. Very simple. Because justification affects our spirit, it affects our body, it affects our soul. But primarily, primarily it affects our spirit. Why? Because of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. I don't have time to go through that. But Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that when we were saved, he placed within us his Holy Spirit, who is our deposit, who is our guarantee, until we acquire possession of it. So we were saved, and yes, all of us was saved, all part of us was saved, but primarily he made our spirit come alive. And at that moment when he gave you justification, he also began sanctification. That big word sanctification, it means to be made holy. And where are we being made holy? In our mind, in our will, in our emotions. This is going to become important in just a moment. Now let me do a scientific observation here. You ready? How many of us, as we're getting older, are we finding it easier to bend down? Easier to pick up twigs after a hurricane? to wash that car, to pick up the grandbaby? Is it getting easier or is it getting harder? You see, the reason why that is is because the body is not getting better. The body is deteriorating. Yes, there are vitamins, and as we work out and we, we, we work our body, but ultimately we know that the body is not going up. The body is going down. However, as a Christian, we are promised that when we leave this body, we will get a brand new body, a glorified. Here's the word glorification. We will get a glorified body. We will be as Jesus is. And yes, that again, we're being very simple. It affects the soul and affects the spirit, but primarily it affects the body. Is everybody still following me? Before you knew Jesus Christ, what Paul is telling us in Romans 6 and Romans 7, before you knew Jesus, what controlled you was right here, the body, your flesh. You had no choice. You had no will. You had no emotions. You could not choose right. You were dead you were dead. Your sarks, your flesh, everything was dead. Physically alive, spiritually dead. When you came to know Jesus Christ, certain things happened in your life. Your spirit came alive. He placed the Holy Spirit. Justification. He placed his spirit in you. He made you come alive. He gave you life. He gave you breath. He breathed his breath in you. Oh, this is so rich. I wish I could go to Genesis 1 and show you. Because you see, it says he literally breathed the breath of life into Adam. When you are saved, he literally breathed the breath of life in you through his spirit. The pneuma in Hebrew, the ruach. 
His, his spirit is now living inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I wish I could preach on that right now. I don't have enough time. The body, the spirit was saved. But now that we are saved, the control center has gone from the body to the soul. The control center has gone from that which is dead to now that which has life. Now, now, don't miss this. Remember our coin. We said all of life is a two-sided coin, and Paul is dealing with the head side in Romans 6 and 7. He deals with the tail side in Romans chapter 8. The, the one side that he's been dealing with is life in the flesh. When I choose to sin, that's when in my soul, in my mind, I choose to follow the body. This is following the flesh. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there is another opportunity, and this is the law of the spirit. Let me show you. Look in your Bible. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know, where do you know things? In your body, in your members, or in your mind? Knowledge comes from the mind, from the soul. He says, for we know. So you're, you're a Christian. We, we, we know these things. This is the operating system. The soul is the operating system. For I know. Verse 15. I don't understand. Again, the, the, the mind, the, the, the suke, the, the psyche, the, the, the mind, the will, the emotions. He said, I know what I should be doing. I don't understand why I'm choosing the flesh. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in, in where? That is my flesh. He said, I know there's nothing good in this part of me. I know in my soul that there's nothing good in me. Meaning the body, the flesh. And then look what he says in verse 23. But I see in my members, that's his body, right here, the body. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. You see, there is a war going on. This is where temptation occurs. When you choose and fall into temptation, you are falling in the flesh. You are choosing flesh over the spirit. You're choosing your way over God's way. Going back to use the same terminology we used at the very beginning of this message. When I sin, it's choosing my way over God's way. My mind and making me captive the law. You say, well, does that mean that I can do whatever I want to do? If my body is that messed up, it's that jacked up, then, then does that mean I can just do whatever I want to? Absolutely not. Guys, put 1 Thessalonians 5 for me on the screens, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. It says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be made kept blameless when Jesus Christ returns. That means that, go, go back to our drawing, go back to our drawing. That means in our soul, in our mind, I should be choosing the spirit instead of the flesh. 
I should be choosing as a Christian, the closer I walk to the Lord, I should be choosing the right things and the spiritual things more than choosing the bad things of the flesh. Looks good on paper, doesn't it? How do we do it? Glad you asked. Paul gives us the answer, but we have to jump five chapters forward to get the answer. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We have it on the screen for you. He says, therefore, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your what? Your bodies as living sacrifices. Let's go back to the screen again. Offer your body right here, right here. You see it? Our body. That which is evil, that which is flesh, the old man, the members. He said, I want you to offer that flesh, that thing that stinks, that thing that I'm carrying on my back, the grave clothes that we were talking about. I want you to take that off and I want you to make that a living sacrifice. That's an odd statement, living sacrifice. Every sacrifice I've ever heard of, to be a sacrifice by definition means you have to be dead. How can you have a living sacrifice? Well, every person within the sound of my voice, you are alive and your, your body, though spiritually, spiritually, it, it, your, your flesh is dead, you are physically alive. And he says, I want you to take your body, your physical body, and I want you to make it a living sacrifice. What that means is sacrificial living. The way you beat your flesh into submission the way you stop living in accordance with the flesh and in your mind, your will, your emotions, your heart, you choose the spirit. The way you beat up the flesh is through sacrificial living. You, you take away what feeds the flesh. If you take away its food, it begins to die even more. What feeds our flesh? Fame, fortune, Notoriety, to be first. Jesus said the first will be last. The last will be first. He said the exalted will be humble, but the humble will be exalted. Pray for your enemies. You want to beat up your flesh and put it in submission? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who have hurt you, harm you. Give of your life and your resources. Giving is anti-flesh. You understand that, right? The, the, the flesh is, is a hoarder. It hoards, it wants more and more and more and more and more. The way you beat down your flesh, the way you give it as a living sacrifice is you give. And the more you give, the more you're choosing the spirit over the flesh. Make your body a living sacrifice. Let's go back to Romans 12, 1, because there's something more there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God for this, your spiritual act of worship. Then he says, don't miss this. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. Let's go back to the drawing one more time. Our soul, our mind, the way we win, the, the battle, the battle is not in your spirit. Satan cannot have your salvation. You are a child of God. You cannot lose your salvation. Your, your body is dead. He can care less about that. It stinks. So the battle is for the mind. This is why it's so important that what you put in, what you watch, where you go, what you listen to, it's so important because what you put in is what's going to come out. 
But the beauty of what Paul says in Romans 12 is that we can renew our mind. You've messed up. Get in line behind me because I'm right there with you. I've messed up too. I've messed up so many times I've lost count. God hasn't, but I have. But the beauty of what God has done for each one of us is that when we come to him and we ask for forgiveness and we say, God, help me to choose what is right, not what is wrong. Help me to crucify this flesh daily. Help me to get rid of this old flesh, the, the, these grave clothes. Help me to, to only focus on the tail side of the coin, not the head side of the coin. Help me to live in Romans 8, not in Romans 7. God gives us the power. You can't do it in your own power. That's why he's given us his spirit. Because his spirit, here's another word that pneuma is translated, power. He's given you the strength, the power, the ability to live this life. But you can't do it when you're living in the flesh. 